If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. We are recording this conversation with Tony Pergolan in the midst of an economic meltdown. And even though we scheduled this recording session months ago, we could not have better timing. You see, Tony is a celebrated, successful nonprofit CEO who brought the venerable 137-year-old nonprofit Bancroft back from the brink of bankruptcy. Now, full disclosure, when Tony's PR people first reached out to me, it was the type of pitch that I typically decline. While she had a newly released book, just based on the email that I received and the promo materials that were attached, it felt to me that Tony would primarily be pitching her organization, Bancroft. And while Bancroft is a worthy organization serving children and adults with disabilities, I explained to the PR team that we don't really profile individual nonprofits or businesses. Their response was perfect. They said, Dolph, let us send you a copy of the book. If you like it, please have Tony on. And to say the least, I loved the book. It is incredibly readable, and it is also an engaging story about the steps Tony took to save Bancroft and the hundreds of families that depend on the organization even today. I quickly realized that the book's subtitle, Leadership Lessons for Nonprofit Leaders, was apt, especially for nonprofit leaders of organizations in financial trouble. Right now, dear listeners, economic collapse we see happening around us, I bet that's a lot of nonprofit leaders. I could share so much with you about Tony's resume, but her most important professional achievement is leading Bancroft to financial growth and a new life as their CFO, COO, and primarily, for most of the time she's been there, the CEO, which is described in her book, Too Important to Fail. So please join me in welcoming Tony to the podcast. Hey, Tony, welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. So let's talk about Bancroft's financial situation on your very first day. So 
as I was being recruited to the chief financial officer role, I received their financials and I could tell by the financials that they were struggling. So within short order, like the first few weeks, what I realized is that it was way worse than what the financial statement said. When I got here, the financials were showing losses, which is not unheard of in, in, in nonprofits. But what they didn't show just as much as I felt was the precarious cash situation we were in. So cash was coming in at a very slow rate. Vendors hadn't been paid for months. So I came in to call after call after call, a vendor saying, please pay us something or we're going to have to turn off your utilities. We're going to have to cut off your supplies. We're going to have to cut off your insurance to your health insurance to your employees. I mean, it was serious because they hadn't been paid for so long. And as I was trying to figure out exactly why cash wasn't coming in, because revenue was certainly being generated, we were for sure performing services. The, the biggest fear that I felt every 10 days was that payday came, whether we were ready or not. And it was really in those first two weeks that I realized that we were tapped out on our line of credits. We had no investments so that I could pull down from savings. We literally had all that was in that bank account and it barely was enough to make payroll. You know, Tony, one of the things that I say again and again for a lot of CFOs and executive directors of nonprofits of all sizes, payday is like a gun to their head every two weeks. And especially for those organizations that pay 26 times a year. I remember as an employee before I was a chief executive, loving those two months out of the year when I got three paychecks. But I also remember as a CEO, really being like, oh my gosh, now we have to hit payroll three times this month. I totally agree. Three times. And and I used to love like a three-day weekend, you know, like President's Day and Martin Luther King Day. And as a CFO, I, I, I panicked through them because it was one day less that cash would come in, right? And we wouldn't get mail that day. We didn't get cash that day. I mean, you really see it from a whole different perspective when you're so dependent on every dollar you receive in. One of the things that I really love, and you laid this out in your book, are some of those critical steps you took in the first 18 months, even 24 months to start the turnaround. Can can you say a little bit about those? Sure. So, you know, at, at the time, you know, all, all I kept thinking about was I got to prioritize. Everything was broken, but you can't fix, you know, how your investments or, you know, your donations are recorded. You, you got to start with the highest priority, which was cash. So I spent all my time or my first, I would say, six months in the business office and understanding the process and why the bills were going out. They were going out incorrectly, like what the issue was. And I tried a lot of things. I brought in you know, a consultant. I brought in new managers. And ultimately, I ended up outsourcing the entire business office because without the cash flow coming in, nothing else mattered. But when I look back in retrospect, I have to say that the single most thing that I think that I was able to bring to this organization was that I, I had business acumen that was not necessarily at the top before. So I'm only the ninth leader of this organization, which I found very, you know, actually admirable. I mean, people who have run this organization have done it for a long time. The people prior to me, I think were more their focus was more on the treatment of kids with autism. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, I don't know that piece. So I'm grateful for the treatment models they established and all the care models they established, but they didn't necessarily have the business acumen at a time where the funding models were changing, billings requirements were different. And so if you don't understand the business model, you can't keep it going. And, and that was really what I did immediately is understand what, what part of our programs generated revenue, which ones we got paid quickly, which ones took a long time to get paid. You have to really understand that to a day when you're running an organization on, on such a thin, thin margin. So business acumen, I, I would say, was, was the thing I needed or that helped the most. And let me just say, this shined through so well in your book. I loved that you definitely took a business approach to it, but you also saw the human side of the work that Bancroft was doing. And so, and I think that's probably actually where your title, Too Important to Fail, comes in. Like you tell stories of real people and real families who have been served by Bancroft and you, and you talk about these moments where you're like, this wasn't just about, okay, let me turn around the business aspect. This was me saving the organization for these people who need it the most. Yes. So, I mean, truth be told, I came as the CFO and I was ready for anything. Like, I remember, you know, my husband, who's a banker, saying, you know, it might go into bankruptcy. And I was like, that's okay. I'm a CFO. Like, I've never done that. That'd be great experience. I really came for the experience. But when I got here and I started meeting some of the individuals we serve and their families, and I heard their stories about where would we be without Bancroft? And Bancroft really allowed my child to do things I never thought they would, like go to the prom and, and graduate from high school and get a job. I was stunned and I thought, I can't make this an accounting problem and get experience of bankruptcy. I really need to make sure this organization is here for these really incredible people who were dependent on Bancroft for so long. There are people here today who've been a part of the Bancroft family for over 50 years. Where would they go? And that's truly how I felt. And it really kind of inspired me to keep moving through the process. I was going to say, so other than, than the business acumen that I brought, I have to say that another critical part of the turnaround was communicating to people. So I found that a lot of people did not know just how dire the situation was. But when I could share it with them and say, here's how you can help, it was all hands on deck. Everybody wanted to help in one way or another. And what I learned is that, that the operations people did not understand that every time they make a decision, whether they're admitting somebody, whether they're approving somebody for overtime, whether they're buying supplies, every decision they make has a direct impact on the financials of the organization. That was an aha moment for them. And they could make much better decisions knowing that. Absolutely. And, and I clearly saw that, like you talked about going into managers meetings and managers never really having access to the financials and not knowing how dire the situation is. Correct. And, and again, once they understood it, and I try to make it more personal, like I said, it's like Bancroft spending money and they're never looking in their bank account like you would right before you went on a vacation. We're just spending, spending, spending. So I'm going to make sure you see the bank account every month so you understand where we are. And it really aligned people, helped them understand it. And, and then I would say the third piece was, is I created a vision for them. Like I created the vision that first thing we're gonna do is stabilize, right? So people were like, well, where are we gonna be in three years? Right now, we gotta think about next payday, right? So you gotta break it into small chunks. 
goals so that people know what you're working toward. And when you work toward it and you achieve it, you got to celebrate it because it builds confidence in people that, okay, we're, we're going to keep following her lead because I see that we're getting better and better. So I would say business acumen, communicating and creating a vision for success in small steps were really some, some of the critical things I did in the beginning. I also love the fact, and, and I think this is one of the other critical things you did, is you had a backup plan. So, you know, you worked with the senior leadership team and the board to make sure there was a backup plan if it didn't work. Correct. And I, I think that that's, that's important because there's a lot of things I found out that were really out of my control, right? If the bank wasn't going to like al- allow us to, you know, give us a waiver to miss covenants, then we were done, right? So there's some things that are out of your control. So because of that, you, you really do need to have a backup plan. So the backup plan for us was to talk to other organizations about merging. And so we, there was about five of them. We went and we you know, looked at their organization and we had them in, we talked to their board. I mean, we had, we did a lot of work around that. In the meantime, we were trying to fix things up. So somebody would, would like us, right? We were like trying to get much stronger. So somebody would want to merge with us and through that process. And I'll never forget the moment where we made the very scary decision at the time of should we merge or are we strong enough to stay independent? And of course, it was um, a very big decision. But uh, once we made it, once we pulled that bandaid off, we were full steam ahead. Mm-hmm. And one of the other things that I, I love about you, when you talked about the story of approaching possible merge partners is there were a couple of partners or at least one that said, hey, we're not interested given what your current financial situation is. And that's when you also went back to the team and said, OK, we're not just strengthening ourselves to maybe survive independently, we're strengthening ourselves to survive even if we merge. Correct. Because we knew that a a partner would only want a strong organization. And so we really needed to focus on doing what was right for the care of our individuals, as well as running a company and to ensure that we were able to move forward in one way or the other. So one of the other things that really struck me in your book, and this may not come across to most readers, so I want to make sure I point it out is that like a lot of nonprofit chief executives, you were, and please don't take this the wrong way, but you were kind of an accidental CEO. You did not come to Bancroft to be the CEO. That's true. I like that that term. I never thought of, thought of it that way, but I was the accidental CEO. So I came as the chief financial. It is my background still today in my, in my heart. I still love my financials more than anything. Um, you know, so it's, it's for sure what, what drives me and it's the, the expertise that I bring. But, you know, as I went through the process and when we did decide to um, stay independent and they asked me to be CEO, I was honored to be, to be honest with you. And I was a little scared because I really didn't know even what all that meant. And, you know, I would say the first thing I did was um, met with the executive committee of my board and said, look, I really, really appreciate this opportunity and I'm going to do the best I can, but I'm a brand new CEO and we just came out of a really tough situation. Like I really need a board that's much smaller and much more focused that can really act as my advisors moving forward. Because at the time we had a very large board, we had 51% of them per the bylaws had to be family members. And while they absolutely were committed to the organization, they didn't necessarily have the, the expertise that I needed to guide us out of this place that we were. And so, um, 
really give credit to the chairman of my board at the time who, you know, helped me do it. We put all the families on advisory councils and we really created a board that could surround me and provide guidance as we move the organization forward. I would have to say that was really critical uh, as a new CEO. Yeah, I, I could totally see how that transition in your board would just be so essential to you, not only your success, but Bancroft's success. Absolutely. And we had, you know, board members who were very philanthropic and were able to, again, provide support as we went through the turnaround. I mean, the board absolutely was critical. And and I I think a a big reason why we're as strong as we are today. What was the transition to CEO like as you were having conversations with um, those folks who were holding your bonds on Wall Street and your major donors who were giving you no interest loans or making major gifts to you? Like what, what was that transition like? So, you know, it was interesting. So people like the bondholders were happy about it, right? They're like, oh, good. We have a C- We have a, somebody with a finance mind running this organization. We're good. The families and the staff, however, were concerned, right? They were like, all she's going to care about is the money. All she's going to care about is the business. And so to be honest with you, I was a little afraid that all I was going to care about <laughs> was the financial. So I was very self-aware about it. And, and I really spent time, I mean, purposeful time out in the programs. Like I wanted to really understand what happened at the organization. Cause the first two years I was here, I was really stuck in my office trying to make the numbers work. And so when we finally stabilized, I thought, I want them to see me as a person. I want them to know that I'm a mom and I have, you know, I care about my kids and I care about these kids too. And I care about the staff. I mean, the staff that work at Bancroft are amazing. They work with these individuals with disabilities. And so I wanted them to see that I was just as much in tune to that as I was on the financials. And I think that that was critical. I think people began to build trust in me in a way they might not have before. I want listeners to just get a glimpse of the success story that both Bancroft has been as well as you as their CEO. And so you've been there about 16 years. And um, and again, I, I know we're not going to be able to cover everything that's in the book, and the book is well worth getting, too important to fail, is well worth getting and reading. It is a great roadmap for any chief executive who feels alone right now. But I want to make sure that readers have a sense and listeners have a sense of of the success that Bancroft has experienced under your leadership. So talk about where Bancroft has gone from, I guess, 15, 16 years ago um, with kind of age and aging campus to where it is today. Yes. So in addition to arriving in this financial crisis, if you will, the other crisis that that was happening was that um, our headquarters, uh, which was located in Hanfield, New Jersey, which is where our founder, Margaret Bancroft, actually started her first school. So there was a lot of history there. There was a lot of roots there. It was a beautiful property in a nice quaint town, 20 acres. So we have this campus, which which is our hub. It's our headquarters. It is where we started. And while we're going through this you know, financial turnaround, I knew in the back of my mind that in order for this organization to truly be a thriving organization, we were going to have to either renovate or rebuild or do something to the campus. I mean, we were 125 years old at the time and we looked every bit of it, right? And so we went through a lot of evaluations, you know, after we got through the turnaround, really focused on growth because I knew that I was going to have to build up that balance sheet so that at the time we were ready, we could 
issue some bonds that would allow us to either rebuild or uh, renovate. So the, the first, I would say, five years was all about growing the organization. We did some mergers. We did some efficiencies. We did a lot of organic growth. If you look at my revenue trend, it's a nice trend off. I was really focused on growing revenue. But then I, I did realize that without, you know, because we had a lot of, you know, board members and people saying, do we really have enough money to rebuild a school? Like, do we real? are we really going to take on all this debt? So I put on my business hat again and I said, you know what, if we don't, we really will not be here for a sustainable time. And here's why our biggest program, well, we have many programs, but I would say our key program is our school. And I say it's key because 75% of the individuals that are in our adult program came through the school. So it's like the front door to the entire organization. So if your front door is small, if your front door is falling apart while all of our competitors are building new schools, people would not come here anymore. So that was really what inspired me to figure this out. And it, it was hard. We had to sell the campus. We had to find a new place. We left the county. But, you know, we we kept going and we found an 80 acre piece of property in Mount Laurel, Mount Laurel, New Jersey, which is a county over from where we were. We went under, we took this $75 million project, which, you know, was a lot of sleepless nights. There was a lot of issues. I mean, we had been profitable for 10 years and the year of financing, we actually had a uh, admission uh, suspension. So we actually lost money in the year we were financing for the first time. I mean, we were going through this turnaround yet again. And you know, what I learned is, especially in the nonprofit world, you're never done going through financial crises. I mean, you'll always be in some kind of turnaround mode and you have to acknowledge that and be ready for it. You're never done. You're never like, okay, we're good. And, you know, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm a little worried about we're going to, we're about to go through it again with this, this whole scare on the virus. I'm just as, as nervous about my, the, the uh, operating the company as I am around keeping my people safe. So we, we undertook this project. We were able to, um, we were able to get the financing. And once the shovel went in the ground, I, I have to say this campus came up within one year. And today is, you know, state-of-the-art facility. There it's all windows. And if you listen to the architect, she says that they built it specifically so that wherever you were, you can see nature because kids with autism are much more calm when they see nature. So we were able to bring a lot, you know, build an environment that was really best for the individuals we served. We were able to make some accommodations for families to better be able to visit their loved ones and for staff to be able to have some downtime. So it's a beautiful campus today, 265 children in the school, 70 residential um, students live right there on the campus. And with, we did marketing as we were, for the campus as we knew we were going to increase capacity. And I have to say, we're thrilled today that we're able to serve um, children from all over the nation. So we get them from California now and Georgia and Colorado and Oregon. So the places we never were able to really um, bring in children before, but there's for sure a need for the service we provide. And we're, we're excited that we're able to do it, but it was an effort and it's, you know, it continues to be now we have a lot of debt on our books, but and we wouldn't we wouldn't be able to be where you are today without it. Right, right. So I do not want us to end this conversation without talking about the emotional toll, especially the emotional toll you experienced in the first 
say three to four years, because I could tell in reading the book and having been the chief exec stepped in as the chief executive of an organization in trouble, as well as an interim chief where sometimes organizations are in trouble. I know what that emotional toll is. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, it was really, again, when I reflect back on it, I felt an immense responsibility for the organization um, because even though I really tried to help people understand what was going on, nobody really understood it the way I did. I mean, I truly knew that we were at times, you know, a, a few days short of running out of money to make payroll and, and living with that responsibility was really difficult. At the same time, I had two young children, 10 and seven, and, you know, had to go home and take off the CEO hat and, and, and be the mom hat and make dinner and go to baseball games and, you know, do all the things. And, you know, I didn't want them to skip a beat. And, you know, I always laugh at the time where one time at the dinner table, they said, mom, how was cash today? And I looked at them and I realized that when cash was good, mommy was happy. And when cash was sad, when cash was bad, mommy was sad. So you you really have to juggle that. And and you know, I have to say though, I'm kind of glad that I had another life to go home to because it really can consume you if all you're doing is worrying about, you know, the the work. But I felt an, an incredible sense of responsibility um, that really fueled me and um and, and allowed me to keep moving forward. And I will just reflect that I was really impressed that you made a point of saying, okay, every night I'm going to leave the office by 630 so that I can go home and be with my family. And, you know, you also talked about in those first couple of years where you scheduled a trip with your mom to Chicago and you said, no, I don't care what happens. We're still going to go away or like the cruise with your husband for four days. So I love the fact that you set some good boundaries so that you still had some sense of individual separation from the from the organization you were running. Yeah, and I think that's important even today. Like I'm a big proponent of vacations both for myself and for my staff. It's just really healthy to get to get away from it because we get so caught up in all that we have to do. So, I'm a big proponent of it and and for sure I think that that was a part of of my survival if you will. And I could not agree more. I want to save just 1 minute for the off the map question. Tony, the the off-the-map question is a question that allows listeners to get to know you a little bit as a person, although I think just in this conversation, they've gotten to know you as a person. And if they read your book, Too Important to Fail, they'll get to know you as a person as well. But one of the things, listeners, that Tony and I share is, although I think she might actually be from the region, my adopted hometown is Philadelphia, which is just on the other side of the beautiful Delaware River from Camden County, which is where Bancroft was located when she first started at Bancroft. And so we're from a similar part of the world. My question for you, Tony, is everyone in Philly and South Jersey has a favorite shore town. What's your favorite shore town and why? That's a great question. That's a great question. Well, you know, I, I, I'm going to tell you, I have two because I actually grew up in Pittsburgh and every year in Pittsburgh, we drove eight hours to go to Wildwood, New Jersey. And it was the one week we look forward to every single year. But at the time, I did not know that there were other shore towns. I only thought that there was Wildwood until I moved here. And then when I moved here, I realized there was way more. And um, from the time I moved here as single to to today, um, I would say Seattle City is my favorite shore town. I love it. Okay. And so why Seattle City? So I think it's it's a nice combination of both a family town and an older town. So there's restaurants and there's bars and there's a lot of family stuff as well. So a lot of the shore towns, they're either 
all bars and restaurants or all family. And I think sale is a really nice uh, combination. We love it. That's awesome. So I do have to share with you, I adore Wildwood when I want a rowdy time. Admittedly, when I moved to Philly, I was um, in my very early 30s. So I do not want as rowdy of a time as I did in my early 30s. But for me, it's Wildwood and Cape May. Oh my gosh. Like I could live year round in Cape May. I really could. It's lovely. Lovely. Well, Tony, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I am so grateful that you came on and shared a little bit about your book, Too Important to Fail, Leadership Lessons for Nonprofits. And Listeners, if you want to get Tony's book, obviously you can do it on Amazon, but I would encourage you to go to her website, tony-pergolan.com. That's tony-pergolan.com. And listeners, let me also just say, this book is packed full of lessons for trying times, and it reads like a story, not like a textbook written by an accountant. So please make sure you pick up a copy of this book especially if you are feeling lonely right now or a little bit isolated as we move into very trying, uncertain times, this book can be real solace for you. Additionally, people can find out more about Bancroft at bancroft.org. And if you want to connect with Tony on LinkedIn, we will post a link to her LinkedIn page as well. Hey, Tony, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. This was fun. I enjoyed it. Listeners, we all know that the economy is transitioning to challenging times. And when the economy gets a cold, our nonprofit sector gets pneumonia. So please be certain to pick up a copy of Tony's book, Too Important to Fail. It is really the perfect mix of inspiration, consolation, and education that will speak to your situation. And by the way, I never sound like a preacher. I don't know where that came from, but I just sounded like a preacher. And if you missed any of the links in today's show, please visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com. While there, you can also subscribe to the podcast or reach out to me. We now put my email address in every set of show notes. And please know that I always respond when you contact me, although it can take a day or two depending how busy my day is. Now, if you're a faithful listener of the podcast, please help share the word by sharing this episode or rating and reviewing it on the podcast streamer of your choice, whether that's Podcast Republic, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever. That, dear listeners, is our show for the week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.